0: Thank you for listening to this week's message from New Day Community Church in Vandalia. We hope this message encourages and blesses you. Look us up and contact us at newdaycommunity.org. I feel like it's always like a beautiful sunny day every time we drive down here. It's always great, right? It's always sunny in Vandalia. I I should remember that for like February, right? Okay, well, those of you who were here last week, you'll know that we're in a two-part series looking at God and politics. And uh, when we were planning our preaching calendar for the year. Uh, Back in the spring, we said, you know, right around late October, early November, people are probably going to be thinking about politics. And so we had a choice as a leadership team. We could choose to ignore the fact that there was this national election and people will be talking about politics. We could have done a topic on really anything else. uh, But we decided, you know, God has something to say about politics. God has something to say as it relates to what's happening in people's lives. And, uh, and the fears that people have, the concerns people have about their own individual lives, or maybe the country as a whole. And we thought, let's take a couple of weeks, and let's tackle it head on. Let's talk about it, and and talk about it from a biblical perspective. And so Pastor Cameron started last week, and uh, this week, obviously, we'll wrap it up before the election day on Tuesday. And so um, one of the things that I'm sure Pastor Cameron may have mentioned last week is we won't, you know, endorse any particular candidate or party or position in that sense, but what we want to do is really give you a sense that God is is concerned about politics. Like he has an intention for politics. He has, you know, he has thoughts about politics. And sometimes I think we can sometimes, I mean some of us sometimes can divorce, you know, our personal faith and our personal Christian walk. Sometimes it seems very removed from kind of big picture national politics. And sometimes, you know, there can be this divide, or sometimes we're just not quite sure what to think about when it comes to politics. And our own individual faith and you know the Christian church has always had to wrestle with politics and faith it's always had to do that so if you think back to the earliest church when you open your New Testament what was the political climate for the earliest Christians who was in charge Rome Roman Empire and were they nice guys were they friendly like hey you guys do whatever you want over there we don't really care No, it was a a political climate that we might call oppressive or a a political climate that was persecuting the church. And we read that, actually, in the book of Acts, right? We read that the church was persecuted and spread. So what I want to do this morning is is, is this. I want to just really quickly look at a little bit of Christian history and how Christians have thought about politics over the course of the Christian church. Look at a biblical framework for thinking about politics and... I know Pastor Cameron talked about that last week, so I'm going to do a very big-picture overview. Then look at some current issues that often become really important for us as we think about not just our vote, but also our political engagement generally, and then just a couple of ideas in concluding about an approach that we might consider. And I'm using um, a book by Ron Sider called Just Politics. And Ron Sider's been an evangelical Christian, writing about politics for a long time, writing about political Engagement for Christians for a long time. And he's a kind of a leading thinker, and I thought I would take his book and really um, use that as a basis if you are interested in reading more um, yourself. The early church made this incredible declaration. It said, Jesus is risen. Right? We say that at Easter. But then the next thing they said is, Jesus is Lord. Right. So Jesus is risen is a very kind of theological historical statement, but Jesus is Lord is actually a political statement. And for the earliest Christians to say Jesus is Lord was not good news for the person who was in charge, and that person was Caesar. Now the thing about Caesar is he wasn't just a political ruler, but as Caesar, he considered himself to be divine. So it was part of the Roman culture where you would worship, you would pour out offerings to Caesar. So when the Christians refused to do that, that was a very political stance. And it got them into trouble, right? The church was dispersed, they were persecuted, and Christians lost their lives over this particular statement and this particular stance. Something incredible happened, though, with Constantine, that second name there. Emperor, Roman He became Roman emperor in the early 300s. He was fighting this really important battle, and he had a vision... And in that vision, he saw the Christian cross, and he decided, the night before battle, he decided, I'm going to put a cross on all the helmets and shields, and if the Lord grants him favor in battle, then he'll become a Christian. So he has favor in battle, becomes a Christian, he's emperor, and he brings together the Roman Empire and Christianity. They become a fi- It becomes the official religion of the empire, and Christianity becomes completely wedded with the state. And that became a paradigm called Christendom that, especially in Europe, we became very familiar with, and that lasted about 1,500 years, where the church and state were hand in hand, right? So that's a pretty incredible statement, right? To think about the church and all the power of government and state and the church, and that's when all those massive churches and cathedrals in Europe were built, and that's when a lot of political systems got built along Christian principles. But it's also when things like the Crusades happened, and there was good and there was bad with with Christendom, and with both of those being put together, but for a long time, they were together. Pretty early in this period, in the 400s, perhaps the greatest theologian in Christian history, St. Augustine, wrote a book called The City of God, and he envisions two cities, one heavenly. And one earthly. And he basically says that the earthly city is only really good for keeping evil in check. And basically, what he's saying here is there's this kind of earthly city, and that's a city that's really concerned with wealth and with, you know, greed and just all of this stuff. But really, the heavenly city is where we should be focused. That's where our eternal peace lies. And he said, you know, in your everyday lives as Christians, you can be concerned with the earthly city because, I mean, somebody has to, and, you know, that's fine, but really keep the heavenly city in mind. And so he separates kind of this earthly sphere of life and this heavenly sphere of life. And he doesn't really see a, a very positive role for politics or, or the state in general. As long as it keeps evil in check and makes sure that Christians have nice, comfortable, safe lives, that's the main thing. Well, a few hundred years later, Thomas Aquinas comes along and he says, actually, uh, humans are built to live in community. Because they're designed to live in community, that means that politics inherently cannot be bad. Because anytime you've community, you have politics, right? Any size group, you have politics in that group, right? Because somebody has to figure out who's in charge and how are we going to divide up all the stuff we have, right? So that's really what politics is when it comes down to it. Who's in charge and how do we divide up everything? So he said, actually, politics is more positive than simply holding evil in check and he saw a more positive role for it and he actually um, advocated for political leaders and politics really trying to seek this idea of the common good for all people so a little bit later we have the reformation we're very familiar as protestants with the reformation we have luther we have calvin we have the anabaptists we don't often hear about the anabaptists but they had a lot of things to say about politics So Luther—and the problem is with the Reformation that they all disagreed with each other when it came to politics. So Luther had this idea of the two kingdoms. It's a little bit similar to Augustine's idea of the two cities. In the two kingdoms, we have the kind of secular kingdom, and then we have the more uh, sacred kingdom. And um, again, Luther had a pretty negative view on earthly politics. He really went back to this idea that politics and the state and government, it really is designed just to keep evil in check. But really, everything good happens in this other, more holy kingdom. John Calvin, writing around the same time, is in Geneva in Switzerland, and he's actually got this completely different approach where he said the role of government actually is to help to further the church. And Calvin really saw this role for politics creating an environment where Christian worship would be protected, where sound doctrine would be defended, and there would be a kind of social order that was shaped by Christian ideals. So if you've read anything about Calvin and what he did in Geneva, he actually modeled the city government after Christian principles, and they were completely together. The Anabaptists were different. They saw a total separation of church and state. They did not see any connection for church and state. They are just so completely different. And the Anabaptists also were radical pacifists. They would refuse to fight in the military and even serve in government. And so a lot of people actually persecuted the Anabaptists back in time because they were just too radical for their day. But their concept of the separation of church and state is actually the way most modern Western societies have set up their culture. So all of these ideas, you can see, Christians over time have never had this one stable way of thinking about politics and thinking about the church. Well, there's lots of back and forth, right? Should the church and state be together? Should they not be together? Is it, you know, which way should it be shaped? And so, this causes us to kind of come to our own day and what's incredible is, in some ways, the ideas that I just shared with you from history, none of them probably were that new or shocking because each of these streams have kind of, from history, have all kind of come together and influenced the way we think about politics today. In this part of the world, we're especially influenced by people like the Dutch Reformers, especially in West Michigan, right, Dutch Reformers, and they came over, they very much were influenced by John Calvin of that list of people that I mentioned. This whole idea that Christians have some direct role to play in society, and that politics has a very, very strong part to play in that. But we are also influenced by other um, streams of the Christian of Christian history which advocate for the separation. So we find ourselves in some ways kind of deciding, well, what way should it be? And we know, of course, officially the country is set up with this division of church and state. So that's one initial area to think about. I want to think about biblical foundations for thinking about politics. And this is a very, very kind of sweeping overview. So I know that um, we've talked about this um with Pastor Cameron as well. When we think about the Scripture, we think about God's original creation. And humans were made in the image of God. So each one of us is made in the image of God. So you remember that from the Genesis passage. God creates the heavens and the earth and the animals and the sea and everything in it. And then about humans in particular, he said, made in the image of God. So we have this elevated status before God. And we draw a lot from that because... Each one of us has individual worth and merit that is immeasurable before God, right? Each one of us matters. Each one of us, as an individual, has incredible worth and value. Each one of us has the ability to make our own choices. Each one of us has the ability to speak and to create and to influence the world. And a lot of our um, Western and American ideals politically, in a sense, rest on that value, right? That we're individuals that we can make our own choice. And the Bible, in a sense, affirms that because it talks about how incredibly unique and worthy each one of us is as an individual. And that goes all the way back to creation, to God's original intention. The other side of that, though, is that the Bible always talks about humanity being in creation, right? Even think back to Adam, right? What did God say about Adam after he'd been around for a while? It's not good for him to be alone, right? Right? So we always think about that in terms of the marriage relationship. But by implication, it also also means that it was never good for Adam to be outside of community with others. And we see that as God sets up the nation of Israel and God's pattern, he always puts people in families and he always puts people together in groups. So we have in the scriptures this balance of individuals and individual worth made in the image of God, as well as the importance of community. And we're always kind of going back and forth between those two, even when we think about politics, right? We're trying to think about, is it individual? Is it community? How do we think about that? One of the things that we see oftentimes is that uh, systems and people around us are broken, right? Sometimes we think about our own individual lives, and we know kind of the brokenness that we sometimes feel in our own lives, you know, sin that we want to overcome in our lives, and we continually ask God for his help and his favor as we do that. We see our growth and our sanctification over time, overcoming sin, becoming more Christ-like. Well, that pattern also happens in kind of society around us. Um, If you really wonder, like, why is it that some people in our community go hungry when we have enough food, right? Why is it that, you know, certain Um, groups of people always seem to be trapped in cycles of poverty in our community? Or why is it that our education system has so much inequality? And you think, why can't somebody just fix that, right? And I think in part the Bible would tell us that there are systems that have been created over time. And those systems, unfortunately, are subject to the corruption of the fall subject to the corruption of the fall. And it's not just individual lives that are subject to the corruption of the fall, but unfortunately systems and whole ways of living in community get corrupted by the fall. In fact, the Bible tells us even the physical earth is corrupted by the fall. And so, in part, when we think about politics, it shouldn't surprise us that the political system, sometimes to us, seems beyond broken, right? And sometimes it seems like, why is it so corrupt? Well, in part, the Bible would say it's because Everything has been corrupted by the fall when we look at political leaders across the spectrum and they say boy is there anyone who's like worthy and like just upstanding and decent you know sometimes it shouldn't surprise us that there's a tendency you know if you're in political office to, to hoard more and more power for yourself or to be open to the influence of corruption you see this across countries in the whole world right political leaders that are open to corruption or open to influence or whatever. In some ways, it shouldn't surprise us because the Bible's really clear. Everything has been corrupted by the fall. However, God is also at work in the world in bringing redemption. Setting everything right. When Jesus came, he, he announced the arrival of something, right? He didn't just show up and say, here I am by myself. What did he say when he arrived? He said, the kingdom of God is at hand, or the kingdom of God is near. Well, what is a kingdom? It's a political statement, right? It's a political reality. It's a political entity. So when Jesus, even when he showed up as a baby and people came to worship him, in some ways that was a political statement because the Messiah had arrived, right? Who got most upset that Jesus arrived as a baby? King Herod. Why would a king get upset That a baby had been born. He understood the political implications, right? It was a political statement. Jesus announces that this kingdom has come. Who was that not good news for? Well, whoever was in charge at the time, right? They don't want another kingdom. They got their own kingdom to deal with. Don't come around here talking about another kingdom. So Jesus has always been comfortable with this idea that his rule and his reign on the earth has some type of political implication, right? It upsets the balance of power. And so when Jesus came and he announced the kingdom, he was also announcing the start of this new order. And in theological language, this is kind of the kingdom is already here, but not yet here, right? Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom, he has started the kingdom, But we still are living out the implications and what the fullness of the kingdom looks like on earth. And we actually get to be part of that. We know that one day God is going to redeem all things. So we talked about the corruption that happens, right? Individual lives, the influence of sin, how it affects our community, how it affects the physical earth. God will ultimately put right all things. And we actually have visions of what that will look like all throughout Scripture. And we often think of Revelation as where that will happen, where the city of God comes down to earth, and that's a huge vision of what will happen at the end. But actually, in prophets like Isaiah, there are lots of images of what the redemption, will, of restoration of God will ultimately look like. In one image, right at the end of Isaiah in chapter 65, the prophet Isaiah is talking about the city of Jerusalem, and the new heavens and the new earth, and what the city of Jerusalem itself will look like. And he makes some really interesting claims. It says, The city of Jerusalem in the new heavens and new earth it will be a city where when children are born, they do not die prematurely. Where they will live to long life. Where if you die before you reach the age of 100, people will say, Huh, that's strange. Where people will build a home and live in that home in safety and security. Where people will plant a vineyard and where they will get to enjoy the, the fruit of that vineyard themselves where what people plant and build, they get to enjoy for themselves, where people will not take it from them. It's a place where justice is restored. It's a place, actually, where people hear the voice of God very, very quickly, and where He hears them. There's a verse in there where it says, basically, as people are asking God for something, He's already answering. Most of that vision is very earthy, right? Right? It's political. It's a new political and socioeconomic order that God is establishing on the earth. And we don't often hear a lot about that in church. We oftentimes think about the relationship between me and Jesus, or the fact that it's a spiritual restoration that happens, which is very, very true. But the Bible is actually much more sweeping when it talks about the type of restoration that God will bring because God must redeem all the broken systems of the world, and He must redeem even our relationship with the physical earth if all of the influence of sin and the fall is to be redeemed. All of it has to be redeemed. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament has a really interesting verse where he basically says, Our flesh and blood, or our battle is not against flesh and blood, but what's it against? Principalities and powers. I don't know if you've thought about that verse much. But a lot of commentators think that that involves at least some political overtones, where um, there's a whole realm of supernatural powers and principalities that have some element in governance over the world, and that they were originally created good, but they became corrupted through the fall, and that there's a sense in which they also will need to be part of this redemption process that happens. If you read the letter of Ephesians and you're not thinking about powers and principalities and the role of the church, then you're missing out on a good part of the action that's happening in the letter of Ephesians. It's just one example. But ultimately, we have victory, the victory over powers, which is to be completed, because we are part of seeing that victory come in through our work as Christians and as the church. So we live in this in-between time where we know the victory of Jesus on the cross is secured, where the principalities and powers have been disarmed. Paul uses that language in the New Testament, right? they have been made a spectacle of them already. And yet we live in this time where we await the fullness of the kingdom to come in. So when we are in this in-between time, we have to wrestle through specific issues that are relevant to our society, relevant to our culture, based on our foundation in looking at scripture, understanding that God is putting all things right that have been corrupted through the fall. And I referenced earlier that I'm using a book by Ron Sider, and he has identified nine issues that we often think about as evangelical Christians. I'm going to really quickly go through them, just spend a couple of minutes on each. But basically what we'll do is just look at these, because often these are areas that we really think about when it comes to either voting or to you know being engaged politically. And you probably won't agree with all of them. I'll just send that disclaimer right up front. Some of them are going to be categories that you're like, I don't really ever think about that. Is that really important? But what I'm trying to show is that for evangelical Christians across the country and even in other, other cultures, these are areas that are become, have been important or are becoming important when thinking about politics. So the first is the role of government. And yes, there is one. So... Um, When we read the scriptures, it's clear that God has a role for government in our lives. And in Romans 13, Paul is clear about that. And it's actually a crucial element for a good society. It's not the only element, it's not the only institution that exists, but it is part of how God has designed us to live together. And I think a lot of Christians do agree with that kind of old Augustan idea that the state is responsible for establishing safety, is responsible for establishing order, and is is responsible to help restrain evil in our culture. On the one hand, the state has a lot of power, right? And Christians are like, it's good the state has power to restrain evil. It's good the state has some of these abilities, right? But the state also can become corrupt. The state also can seek too much power. So as Christians, we have to, I think, and I think a lot of Christian writers would would say that this church must always be vigilant to make sure that the state is not going too far in exercising its control because of the uh, ability for the state to become corrupt in and of itself. Just like anything, any system can become corrupt under the influence of the fall That's really related to the second point, which is justice. The Bible's very clear. I'd say maybe even insistent, both through the Old Testament and the New Testament, that God is very concerned with justice. And not just concerned with justice in this abstract making, uh, making things right spiritually, where there's an element of the wrath of God has to be satisfied because of sin in the world. That is true, but God is also very concerned with justice as it relates to very, very tangible things. When you read the law or you read the prophets, God is very condemning of cultures that do not look after the poor and the widow and the marginalized, uh, where justice is not dispensed fairly in the court system, where land is divided up in a way that is not sufficient for everybody in the society to have a a way to live and to to earn a wage. God's really concerned with those things. I know it's complicated politically, but God is always on the side of the poor and the marginalized. That's true in our own culture. It's also true globally. So much of what we do today, in some way, is connected to what's happening around the world. And there are so many people today—people, scholars estimate, about a billion people—that survive on a dollar a day or less. Well, what can we do? Is there anything we can do in our own political engagement, or just even in our own, on our own lives, to orient our lives towards seeking justice, whether it's here? or whether it's for people around the world. That's also related to the next point, which is human rights, democracy, and capitalism. We're really familiar with the capitalist market economy that we live in today. We're used to that type of setup. But there's also um, pockets around the world and countries around the world that live in a more socialist or communist style system. And amazingly, there's not really a direct relationship between the state government the form of government, and the way the church thrives or does not thrive. There are countries around the world today, like China, where the church is growing exponentially. People even can't keep up with how fast the church is growing. They can't even estimate it. It's tens of thousands of people a day are coming to faith in a communist country. It's incredible. And then there are Western democracies where the church isn't really thriving so much. And vice versa, right? That's an incredible... That's an incredible kind of reality of just how we live today. But I do think in the West we see, and we like to affirm, that the democratic way of doing government has a lot of correlation with what we see in Scripture as important values or virtues, such as seeking um, to be honest, seeking to have tolerance and love for neighbor. It also affirms individual worth and freedom. But again, no matter what system of government we have over us, and Christians have over them around the world. Christians can never be on the side of government when it dehumanizes people, when it enslaves people, and when it causes people to fall into systems that they can never get out of. When we think about the sanctity of human life, especially the issue of abortion. This often tends to be one that is very emotive for evangelical Christians and one that oftentimes, you know, I've just heard in conversation, oftentimes is one that actually becomes the deciding factor or one of the two main deciding factors when people are looking to cast a vote. And again, to go back to what we talked about in Genesis, the Bible is very, very clear that God values every single human life, that every single human life has incredible worth and value. And oftentimes the approach in um, our Christian faith or through churches and other organizations is to work on a legislative solution, right? Where we can hopefully get to this goal where abortion is uh, re- is restricted in terms of access or even abolished is a goal that um, people will have through legislative action and working with different groups. We live in a pluralist society, and this in a pluralist society you have Lots of different groups and people that basically have a voice and get to vie for attention, right? You know this if you're talking to people and you're like, this other person is crazy. I don't know what they're talking about, but they have a voice, right? We always are competing and having to make our voice known. And as part of this whole conversation of the sanctity of human life and really any of these issues, we have to find ways as Christians to be compelling in our language, compelling in the way that we talk to society because the way our society is set up, Politically, that's how we have a voice, is through being able to engage with others and to talk with others and try to find some way that together we can build towards having our voices heard. So working on the legislative solution is, is one way to, to go at this. But another is to come alongside other organizations and even families and women that find themselves in this situation of having to make a choice about whether to have an abortion or not. Are there other ways that we can help structure socially and what's happening in our community so that there are other alternatives and that there are other ways to come at this this problem that we have in our culture? I think to other areas related to the sanctity of human life, it's becoming even broader for a lot of Christians as they think about things like, wow, like euthanasia or end of life, you know, doctor-assisted end of life. That's becoming a bigger conversation. It's legal in the state of Oregon, for example. And this is something that's going to come up and be more visible. Uh, even things like genetic engineering and kind of messing around in, in, in biology and genetics and thinking about making better humans through science. This is something that's kind of coming into our culture a little bit more. Thinking about um, capital punishment. Does the state have the right to end someone's life? These are, this, this is on the ballot in three different states. On Tuesday, you know, either to remove it, amend it. So these are things that are that are in our political system. I think to another thing with the uh, sanctity of human life is even things like access to food, right? We have enough food; it's just we divide it up in a way that some people go hungry, and actually more people go hungry maybe than we might even realize, <laughs> even here in West Michigan. Often that's a political thing, right? That's Politics involved there. Who gets to say who has what? Marriage and family has become really, really big, right, in our culture. And I think the main thing as Christians is we do affirm the importance of marriage, this covenant relationship. And again, it goes all the way back to Genesis when Adam and Eve were together and the creation of family. And Christians engaged in this whole area of marriage and family are to affirm the importance of God's design for marriage and family, but also that marriage and the preservation of marriage is at the core of a stable society. When you look around the world, keeping the core marriage relationship, and especially for raising children, that is the core to a stable society. You see it around the world. And so um, we're obviously talking a lot about marriage and family these days in our politics But again, as churches, how can we speak into this and how can we even encourage families to stay together? You know, if somebody comes and says, Hey, I'm thinking about getting divorced, how can you come alongside them and say, Don't get divorced? Like, is there a way that we can keep marriage and honor marriage as a central building block of our society? Religious freedom, the role of the church and the state. As I mentioned, historically, this is an area that we have really had to wrestle through as Christians over the period of church history. We live in a time where our church and state relations are officially separate, and yet we know that in some ways they're influencing each other all the time, right? And as Christians, again, we kind of have to think about in what ways do we want the state to work for us? And Mainly that's through what do we want the state to legislate? and what do we not want it to legislate? You know, sometimes we get caught in a trap where we often in a lot of parts of our lives we don't want the state to be that involved, right? You know, we often talk about states, you know, too much regulation on this or that, right? We don't want the state to be too involved. Yet on the other hand, there are issues we feel really strongly about, we want the government to legislate so everybody agrees with our political our, our statement, right? So sometimes we get caught where what is the role of the state and what's our relationship with government? War, peace, and violence. Um, I don't know if it surprised you to know, but a lot of people around the world, especially since 9/11 and going, invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq, would say that the U.S. has basically become a country that's known for going to war. That the U.S. has become known for its violent action in the world. And this is tough because there's a balance, like we talked about earlier. If the, the state has a role to restrain evil. And the state has a role where it is is supposed to protect its citizens, right? And yet, are there times when the state overreaches in protecting its citizens? And again, as the church and as Christians, this can become a complicated issue. Because we want to be safe, right? We want to feel protected. And yet, when we see stories of torture or war crimes or action in different parts of the world, do we at least pause and say, is that justified? Do we ask God, oh, is this right? Creation and the environment. This is one we don't often talk about in church, but increasingly is becoming important for evangelicals kind of across the board in the country to say, well, I don't know what's happening with the environment, but it seems seems like if we keep using up all of our fossil fuels, you know, our grandkids, our great-grandkids, sooner or later, somebody's not going to have gasoline to put in their car or whatever, right? So we're doing something in terms of consumption. And it's simply to say, as stewards of what God has given us, is it right that we keep going down the path we're going? And I think increasingly this will become one that's prominent as we think about engagement in our culture. And then finally, international affairs. The U.S. election is not just a national election, it is closely watched all over the world. i got friends and family who are just like, what is going on over there? Um, But I want to talk about two areas. First is nationalism. When we think about international affairs, you know, it causes us to think about what does it mean to be American, right? And this has actually been stirred up a lot in this election cycle, this whole thing of we need to put America first, right? We need to put America first. Well, there's a sense in which it's great to be patriotic. It's great to feel part of your country and your community. At the same time, the kingdom comes first, and an allegiance to God comes before any other allegiance. The gospel always, always draws us into allegiance to Christ first and to his kingdom. The second is, um, international affairs involves the movement of people, whether that's through immigration or refugees. And... This, again, is an emotive issue and one that's prominent in the election cycle. And again, what I would say is when you read Scripture, God is always on the side of the immigrant. Now, again, politically, that's super complicated, right? Really complicated. But I would say as Christians, we do need to be mindful that God is on the side of immigrants. If you read Scripture, it's all the way in there. There's provisions in the law for the foreigner. There's all sorts of stuff in there. Jesus himself at one point in his life was a refugee, He had to flee his home country and go and live somewhere else for a while. So God is on the side of the immigrant. And again, politically, boy, how do we figure that whole situation out? But I think we need to be careful that God is very much on the side of the immigrant as well as the poor, the oppressed, and the marginalized. Finally, a couple of points just to wrap up. What should our approach be when we think about political engagement? This includes voting, but it's also bigger than that in terms of how we engage with those around us in our culture, our society. The first one is being the church. This might sound flippant. It's not designed to be flippant at all, because the church is actually designed to be this prophetic symbol of community that God has designed. We are to be an example to the rest of the world of what reconciled community looks like, reconciled across socioeconomic lines, racial lines, gender lines, any line that you can imagine. The church is supposed to... Do away with all of that. We're all one in Christ Jesus, and we're supposed to be this community that in our relationship, our love for one another, our allegiance to Christ is a symbol of what the kingdom of God looks like and ultimately what the final restoration will look like. And so it's a very, very powerful community. I don't know if you think of yourselves that way, but symbolically we are a very powerful community because we are an example to the world of what it looks like to have a community under the leadership of Christ. The second is prayer. The Bible, no matter who's in charge, calls us to pray for our political leaders in 1 Timothy 2. If we believe that God has placed rulers in charge and we believe in the power of prayer, then we are called to pray for our leaders, whether we like them or not. Third one is shaping culture. I talked about this earlier. In the type of system we have set up right now, we have to speak into culture and try to shape the culture that's around us. Withdrawing from culture has has happened before. Some people will advocate for that, but I would say it's more important to help shape culture. Education, simply learning about the issues that affect us politically, learning about who's running for office. You can go and get your sample ballot online and look ahead of time and learn who's running for office and all those don ballot issues and, and offices as well as the main one. And If you're really fired up about politics you might even consider lobbying your local politicians or whoever about particular issues, making your voice heard. It's amazing the number of times you hear a politician say, if only I'd heard from the church, then it would have swayed me to vote differently or something like that. And then finally, you might even think about running for office yourself. So as we head into the election and as we kind of head into the fallout from the election, whatever that looks like, what's our role to be? Well, I do think it's important that we are part of The reconciliation that will have to happen after, right? We are reconcilers. Christ calls us to have a ministry of reconciliation. I think that affirming the sovereignty of God is really important. No matter who wins, God is still in charge, and our hope is still in God. It's not in any particular candidate, party, or position. We place our hope and our faith in God I think language can be important, too. We're a language-based society, and what we say and what we write can carry a lot of meaning. And I do think it's important to just say, look, God is in charge. We're in this divisive time. We're all about reconciling. How can we move forward together? And did you know that our hope is in God, and it's good to, to look to Him? And we can be salt and light in very, very particular, specific ways around this time, right? When there's a lot of fear there's a lot of mistrust, we can actually provide something that is radically different to say our hope and our trust is in God. So we hope that last week and this week has at least given you something to think about, something to mull over as we're in this time. It's a time when when there's so much uncertainty. We can be affirmed again in our faith in God, where we can say, Jesus, you are in charge and you are making all things right. I think ultimately, as we sang about this morning in worship, as we read in Scripture, God will put all things right. And we have a part to play in that. All right, well, let's pray. God, we thank you that you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords, you are in charge. And we look to you and we just remind ourselves again that you are the great King. We pray, God, you would give us each wisdom and guidance as we vote and as we talk with our neighbors, our friends, our family. Help us, God, to be salt and light in this time and in our communities. Be with each person and family this week, God. I pray your protection, your blessing, and your covering over them. Would you go with them in every area of life, we pray. In your name we ask it. Amen.